Okay, I'm going to tell you about our work in chemistry and then about science and faith. So I'm going to start with some of the work that we do so that you can see some of the things that we've been working on. This is a topic where we make graphene. You may have heard of graphene, single atomic sheets of graphite. We've learned how to make this in air rather than than at at, at a thousand degrees. And this is a, a a material that we call laser-induced graphene. We published the first paper on this in 2014. We've published over 20 papers on this topic, but now there's a paper a week coming out in the literature on this topic. So it's really changing the face of, of application space for nanotechnology with graphene. We can even write graphene on, on bread and coconuts, and so we, we can turn, turn even food items into devices. Uh, so this is one of the, the, the ones that's being translated into... Uh, uh, application areas. Uh, this is graphene nanoribbons. We're able to split carbon nanotubes longitudinally, make ribbons. We've worked on computer memory. All of this has been translated into companies. We do a lot on traumatic brain injury and stroke, uh, supercapacitors for vehicles, trapping of carbon dioxide from natural gas. Uh, this is where we've taken the leg of a cockroach and turned it into graphene. Uh, we wanted to take a negative value material. What's a negative value material? And uh, um, just to give you an idea, we also did it with Girl Scout cookies. A box of Girl Scout cookies is $4. Uh, if you convert all the carbon in a box of Girl Scout cookies to graphene, you could sell that graphene for $15 billion. Because the price of an item is not based on the element. The value of an item is actually based on the arrangement of the atoms in, in the molecular structure. And, and so you, you can actually see that in the biological system. If you look at a human being and you just take away the spiritual aspect, just looking at the physical aspect, how much is that entity worth as far as just a mechanical organism? And, and uh, uh, you know, a, 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 uh, an insurance company would say $7 million for a middle-aged male. That, that's what uh, uh, the actuarial uh, assessment is, but if you convert that to CO2 and water by cremation, that's less than a penny worth of material. So it, actually, same elements, it's just how they're structured. This is graphing quantum dots that's been tra translated now into a, a public company called Dots, and this is uh, um, graphing nanotubes, uh, graphene uh, that are interconnected with carbon nanotubes, and that's going into battery applications. Uh, this is this is a nano car. We're going to talk more about nano cars, where we built these motors into the middle section of a car. Uh, the, these motors spin at actually three million rotations per second, and then they spin and they they, they can go along a surface. You can park fifty thousand of these cars across the diameter of a human hair. So that's how small these are. We've taken the same motors <clears throat> and we put peptides on them. These peptides will recognize certain cell types. So we can direct them to attach to a certain cell type. And then the motor sits there. And then when we turn them on, they will drill through the lipid bilayer of a cell and kill the cell within one minute. So there's a lot of cells you want to kill. And so that's a mechanism to do that where we drill into cells. We do a lot in the oil industry for trap, trapping radioactive material, for plugging holes. And then one other topic where we've We've taken these graphene nanoribbons that I told you about, and William, who actually made the graphene nanoribbons for this application, we took a 1% solution of graphene nanoribbons that had been pegylated at the edges in, in polyethylene glycol. We cut the, the spinal cord of this rat has been cut in half, in two, at the base of the neck at C5. We put one drop of the graphene nanoribbons, and after two weeks after surgery, he's walking again. 
And uh, uh, so we're able to see the regrowth of the neurons from top to bottom and bottom to top. Scored an 18 out of 21 on a mobility scale, where 21 is the optimal mobility, and that's after two weeks. And then you'll see now this, this transition that can occur now after, after three weeks, where he now scores a 19 out of 21 on a mobility scale. And so you can see they can actually do quite well uh, in this restoration. And this is, this is now translating to, to uh, uh, another company with some of my Israeli colleagues. And you can see he's going to try to run away after what's been done to him in the past. But, but uh, he's doing quite well. All right, so I'm going to speak today starting out on origin of life and evolution. This is going to be a technical lecture. <clears throat> it's with intent. There'll be no mention of God or gods or intelligent designer. Science will be used to critique scientific research. Because if I bring God into it, people will make the claim, oh, well, Tour used the baby Jesus to address these topics. I will use science to address science. And then only at the end, when I'm done with that, we'll get back into the apologetics part and bring God back into it. But science is quite able to address the elements of science. <clears throat> what is the origin of life? Well, if you look at a cell, this is the cell, and a cell is a factory. It is not just a bunch of protoplasm. It's got all of this different structure, huge amounts of different structure. It's got these mitochondria where, where all the, the, this, this motors take place, where you, where you get all this energy for the cell. It has these tubules that can form. So, so how, does in, how does material in a factory get from point A to point B? You see these overhead carriers that are carrying things across. Same thing happens in a cell where you get these tubule-like structures and matter, material, goes from one point of a cell to another. But then as soon as that's done going, that tubule, that rack, will decompose and then form somewhere else in the cell. And so the cell is constantly reconstructing all of this. So it has all of this ability and all of this control and all of this structure. It is massively complex. Nobody has ever built a cell, even a, a cell, let alone a big biological organism like an animal or a person. Nobody's ever done that. <clears throat> but this is what we're up against. How did the first cell form? That is what we have to address in Origin of Life. How did the first cell form? So many experiments have been done to try to make a cell. And I'll show you where we are on that. But first you have to make the chemicals for the cells. The origin of life. Molecules don't care about life. Organisms care about life. Chemistry, on the contrary, is utterly indifferent to life. Without a biologically derived entity acting upon them, like a person making them do something, molecules have never been shown to evolve toward life. Never. Never do molecules move toward life. They have no desire to. They have no mind to do that. Organisms care about life. <clears throat> molecules don't. But on a prebiotic earth, the earth before biology was here, there were only small organic chemicals, it is presumed. Things like formaldehyde, things like cyan hydrogen cyanide, carbon dioxide, acetone, just small molecules. And from those small molecules, we have to build all the structures then to build up a cell. <clears throat> So almost every chemical synthesis experiment in origin of life research can be summed up by a protocol analogous to this. The researchers would purchase chemicals. They purchase them from chemical companies, generally in high purity from a chemical company. They mix those chemicals together in water at high concentrations or in a specific order with some set of carefully devised conditions. They'll obtain a mixture of compounds that have a resemblance to one or more of the basic four classes of chemicals needed for life. That's carbohydrates, nucleic acids, amino acids, and lipids. You need those four classes of compounds for life. 
Then they'll publish a paper making bold assertions about origin of life from these functionless, crude mixtures of stereoscrambled intermediates, much like Miller did in the Miller-Urey experiment in 1952. You engage the ever-gullible press to dial up the knob of unjustified extrapolation, watch the mesmerized layperson exclaim, you see, scientists understand how life formed, and then you encourage a generation of science textbook writers to make colorful, deceptive cartoons of raw chemicals assembling into cells, which then emerge as slithering creatures from a prehistoric pond. And that's what fills the books today. That's what students learn from. And this is exactly what happens. This is the synthesis problem. If you really wanted to make these chemicals for synthesis, Molecules that compose living systems almost always show homochirality, meaning that they're one mirror image and not the other. Your left and your right hand are mirror images of each other. If you put your right hand and you look at it in the mirror, it looks like your left hand. But they're non-superimposable. You can't put a right hand on, your right hand in the left-handed glove. Almost all biological molecules are, are, are homochiral. They come in only one form. When building molecular systems, constant redesigns are needed to take the synthesis back to step one. It's often impossible to remove a moiety once it's been added to a molecule. So, think about this. Say there's a process going on where some molecules are being built up, and all of a sudden, somehow in a natural system, it's built a little bit of a wrong segment. First of all, it doesn't even know what's wrong because it doesn't even have a target that it's going to. But let's just say it knew somehow. Now, it made a mistake. What does it do? It has to go back to step one. You often can't remove the moiety once it's been put on there. And because it's homochiral, all these experiments are really hard to do. Synthetic reactions don't know how to stop their current course of progression or why to stop. The chemist stops the reaction and isolates the material. Nature doesn't know how to stop the reaction because it doesn't know why to stop. There's no mind there. This is a prebiotic world. This is prior to biology. Time. People say, oh, well, you have long time, billions of years. No, time, although claimed to be the great savior of abiogenesis, is actually the enemy. For example, carbohydrates are kinetic products. They caramelize. They undergo decomposition. So in other words, if a chemist is going to be making carbohydrates, which is very hard chemistry to do, really hard chemistry to do, you have to stop the reaction or else it goes on to other unwanted products. They're kinetic products, meaning that they're not the thermodynamically most stable products, are caramelization. They de decomposition products. A prebiotic system doesn't have the ability to purify its structures. It doesn't know how to purify it. If you don't purify your chemicals after each step, what happens is the, is the unwanted side reactions build up in there. And those consume whatever reagents there are for starting materials, and you get messes that can't be worked on. So chemists will purify after each step. You have to do that. Nature would have to do that too. There's no way around it. Nobody knows how these things were purified. Reagent order is essential. Say you're baking a cake. You have the flour, you have the eggs, and, and you say, well, uh, why don't I just add the icing now? <laughs> well, you can't do that. Well, why not? Well, because first I've got to bake this cake, then I put the icing. Exactly. There's a precise order. All of chemistry is like this. How does this happen, this precise order, when you have hundreds of different chemicals that have to be fed in at the right time? Oh, well, this pool spilled into that pool, and this pool... Millions and millions of times over and over again in exactly the right order? The parameters of temperature, pressure, solvent, light, no light, pH, atmospheric gases, no gases, have to be carefully controlled, 
in order to build a complex molecular structure. Characterization at each step has to be done. A chemist has to stop and characterize or else you don't know what you have. How does nature do characterization? Well, now that we have biological world, we have enzymes that check everything. And if the thing isn't right, the enzymes, other enzymes come and chop that thing back up because they don't want it contaminating it. But in a prebiotic world, before there were any enzymes, because the enzymes come from biology, but you have no biology in a prebiotic world. It's abiogenesis before biology. How did, how did the characterization take place? Nobody knows. The mass transfer problem is the killer of all roots. So what do you do? You start with a kilogram of material, you go about four steps and you're left with five milligrams of material. And so what do you do? You go back and you make more and you bring it on through. It's called bringing up starting material from the rear. But now nature's going along and has spent 400 million years getting to this point and it ran out of starting material. Okay, we'll go back and make some more. Uh, it's hard for me because I never kept a laboratory notebook. I don't know what I did. So this is just one little part of making the motor for those little little motors that drill through cells and that we build into the nanocars. And so you look at all these different reactions that take place. You, you use 5 degrees and then cool it to minus 10 to minus 15 and then you go up to minus, then you go down to minus 50 degrees and, and you have all of these temperature controls and then you hear you're using 130 degrees and 60 degrees. Well, why do we use all these different temperatures? Oh, we just like cooling things and heating things. No, you have to! or the chemistry doesn't work. Nature would have to do the same thing. Nobody knows how. There's precise orders in doing things. So this is just one reaction, just one step of the reaction of, of what you have to do. You, you, so, so you put in a cooling bath at minus 15 degrees centigrade to minus 10 for 1.5 hours. After this period, the reaction mixture was cooled to minus 50 and then transferred to a strength All of this for one little step. And then you have to, so how does this happen? Nobody knows. None of the biological experiments that people have done when they say they, they, they've created life, they never went through any of this. They're lying. They never went through any of this. They have no idea how nature could have done this. And then you have to characterize it. So we use a tool called nuclear magnetic resonance and we characterize it. And so just looking at this one molecule, we break down these structures and we characterize it. Well, how do we describe to the world so that they can see that we know what we're doing. So we write this up. And here it is, a combination of sin. And so this is the write-up. But that's only part one. There is part two to this. So there's the other part. All right, so you have to do this to convince your colleagues that you got what you say you got. Every biological system has to do a characterization, whatever the tool you use, but it's complex. For this paper on the nanocars, it had 281 supplemental pages just talking about how we characterized it to prove that we got what we got. You have no idea how this happened in nature. Remember, there's no brains yet. It's an abiological world. This is prebiotic, origin of life. Nobody has ever explained this. Nobody. So you, you put this, we make this nanocar. The first nanocar we made with the motor in it had this motor. And this motor would spin when you shine light on it. But it would spin at 1.8 revolutions per hour. It's kind of slow. <laughs> but then when we pulled out this sulfur atom and closed this down to a five-member ring, then it's going three million rotations per second. So small changes at this level have a big effect. So what do we do? Oh, well, you just erase that sulfur atom and then you go across to there. But you can't do that in real. 
That took us back to step one in the synthesis. But again, it took us a billion years to get here in nature. How do you go back to here? Oh, I don't know. Nobody knows. How you... And this is trivial compared to nature's complex systems. This is trivial compared to what you do with biological systems. This is silliness in comparison. <clears throat> then once you deal with the synthesis, which you can't deal with, because you have to make the four classes of compounds, which nobody else has, has ever made ab initio from the beginning, starting in a, with prebiotic-like conditions. Even using advanced synthetic techniques, it's tough. But then you have to assemble them into a cell. So a protocell is a self-organized, endogenously ordered, spherical collection of lipids proposed as a stepping stone to the origin of life. So it's taking a lipid bilayer and it forms a spherical system capturing water inside. So that when, when people make this, they say, hey, you know, we're, we're going toward life. Oh, are you? Okay, so once, once they make a protocell, this is what all protocell experiments, assembly experiments can be summed up as. You purchase homochiral diacetyl lipids from a chemical company, or they synthesize stereochemically scrambled lipids from small molecules. You add these lipids to water and observe the simple and expected thermodynamically driven assembly of those lipids into a synthetic bilayer vesicle upon agitation. And actually, you need some shear. Sometimes the researchers will add other molecules like nucleotides that get engulfed. Publish a paper claiming that the synthetic vessel is a, vesicle is a protocell suggestive of early forms of cellular life. Engage with the media to ramp up the hype. Watch the layperson be misled. Every experiment in, in, in assembly is based on this. Well, do they really have something that looks like a cell? This is what the lipid bilayer in a real cell looks like. It is filled up with entities, with proteins, with carbohydrates, all these things that are going through here. The top surface is different than the bottom surface. Every one of the protocell experiments, it's the same top and bottom. Oh, well, that doesn't matter. What's the difference? Top and bottom, same. Top and bottom, different. What's it? makes a big difference. The cell doesn't work when the top and bottom are the same. And then all the different little organelles, the different pieces within the cell, have their own constituents within the lipid bilayer. It's flooded with things on the surface that control the opening so that certain substrates can get in, other substrates can get out. It controls what gets into the cell. All of these are sophisticated nanomachines that have to be in here for this to be a cell. Researchers have identified thousands of different lipid structures in the cell membrane. When researchers make protocells, they use one. One type. There's thousands of different types in a cell. Uh, lipid bilayers surround sub, subcellular organelles. Lipid bilayers have a non-symmetric dis distribution. There's protein lipid complexes. So they're highly complex. Here's another one. See all these little things that are represented here? Every cell is covered with what's called glycans. These are sugars or carbohydrates that extend out over the cell. You say, what's the difference? They're all the same. No, they're all different. And it's by this that cells recognize each other. One cell comes up and bumps against another. How does it know what kind of cell it's bumping up next to? By recognizing the carbohydrates that are on the surface. This is what controls blood type, for example. So if you just, if you just consider the nucleic acids, the things that make up DNA, just consider the A base, A. If you had six A's, what's the different ways that you can hook those together? A, 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 A. Six in a row. That's the only way you can hook six together in DNA. But if you just had six D-pyranoses, six, six of one type of carbohydrate, 
There's over one trillion constitutional and stereochemical isomers. Over one trillion ways you can hook that together. There's more information by far embedded in the carbohydrates, in the sugars, than there is in DNA. You think DNA has all this information. That's great. Well, DNA can't store nearly as much information as a carbohydrate can. Six of the same carbohydrates has one trillion combinations to hook it together. If you get it wrong, the cell doesn't work. Nobody's ever figured out how that happens. But, but we made a protocell, so we're sort of like going toward life, right? No, you're nowhere close. They never address this. Then there's the interactomes. This is the non-covalent interactions within a functioning cell. So if you just take the proteins in a single yeast cell, 3,000 different proteins, if you say, what's the way that these can line up next to each other in, in, in this cell for, for working? Well, it turns out that's been calculated by these, these groups from, from Belgium, Brussels, and from Johns Hopkins, and it's 10 to the 79 billion combinations. Now, how big a number is that? Well, let's compare. The number, the estimated number of elemental particles in the universe is 10 to the 90. This is, this is 10 to the 79 billion. This is a crazy big number. People have no idea. People don't even understand the difference between a million and a billion. Really. They don't. Oh, a million dollars, a billion dollars, what's the difference? <laughs> People don't understand. Let me put it this way. Let me put it in something you feel. A million seconds is 11 days. A million seconds is 11 days. You ask somebody, will you marry me? I'll tell you in a million seconds. Okay, I'm cool with that. <laughs> if they say, I'll tell you in a billion seconds, that's 32 years. And now if you go to a trillion seconds, that's 32,000 years. So when you start throwing things around from a million to a billion to a trillion, you see it's a big difference. This is, this is huge, huge compared to anything like a million or a billion or a trillion. This is a one with 79 billion zeros after it. You got to get that thing right. Nobody has any idea how that happened. And so when cells divide, they get all these ordered up and they start dividing and they never lose this order. They keep just transferring this order. Nobody knows where the first cell came from. The first cell came from. So proto-turkeys. Origin of life proto-cell assembly is akin to buying 20 pounds of sliced turkey meat, adding a gallon of turkey broth, warming, sticking in a few feathers and suggesting that a live turkey will eventually come gobbling out if given enough time. Or that a proto-turkey or an extant turkey has been synthesized. This is exactly the same thing. Who of us would be so foolish to say you, 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 you buy 20 pounds of sliced turkey meat, you throw that in and turkey's going to come up if you have enough time. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Time doesn't do that. That's exactly what people are saying. Origin of information. Critical for life is the origin of information, DNA or RNA. The information is primary, the matter is secondary. The carbohydrates, the lipids, the nucleic acids, the, prote the proteins, that's all secondary, that's matter. It's the informational code that is primary. But we can't even get the matter made, let alone the information. What is the code? So even if you had the nucleic acids, how do you line them up to give you the code to build the system? Because all of the code for the enzymes to be made, to make, to build it, came from some code. You can't just take a random order and have code. 
Nobody knows where the code came from. The code is actually more fundamental than the matter upon which it's embedded. And we see this all the time. There's information, I type on my computer, there's information going from, from, from now transistors into flash memory. And this, this flash, when I hit save, goes into flash memory. And then I want to, I want to store this in the cloud somewhere. So I hit a button and it's going through an RF wave. So now it's now in another form, going in an RF wave into, into a, a little, little box on the wall. Then it's going to go through a wire. Now in another form, it's going to a wire to some server farm someplace where it's embedded now in flash memory again. It's taken all these different forms, but the information has remained the same. The matter upon which it's embedded changes. We have no idea where the information came from. We're just dealing with the matter. This is, we're clueless on this. Try to build a cell, even hypothetically. A dream team, you assemble however smart people you want from the best universities you want. They can't make a, 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 a cell, a, a living cell, make a cell or a living cell if given all the chemicals in homochiral form and the informational code. Even if we gave them the code and said, I'll give you all the DNA you want in the order you want and all the different pieces and all you have to do is assemble it. Just make the lipid bilayer, get all these things stuck in, right? And put this thing together. Could they do it? No. The answer is no. Nobody can do this. So if they tell you they can do it, they are lying or they're real novices. Nobody can do this. Not only can they not do it, they don't even know how to begin a, the attempt to do it. It's not known. It's fool's gold. So there were alchemists who were working and alchemists would try to change certain elements into gold. And they tried and they tried. Now we know you can't do that. The only thing you can do to change one element into another element is you've got to change the number of protons and you need some nuclear process, which is really expensive. But they thought that they could mix things together. So they noticed if they took iron and they mixed sulfur with it, if they added enough sulfur, they'd get something that looks like gold. Now they knew it wasn't gold because it didn't have the same ductility, didn't have the same melting point. But wouldn't the alchemist community have thought, okay, we don't have gold yet, but we're getting close. We must be on the right path. We must be. No, you're not on the right path. You can add sulfur to any chemical you want. It's not turning into gold. So what am I calling for? I'm calling for a moratorium on origin of life research. A change is warranted. The man's addressing the hurdles, such as the origin of life's code the roots to complex assembly and interactomes that are essential to cellular functioning, mass throughput in synthesis to provide the requisite quantities of molecules in their homochiral forms, or some substantiated experimental suggestion as to why these are not needed and what's needed. We are wasting our money. For the last 66 years since the Miller-Urey experiment, origin of life research has gone nowhere. Think of what's happened in the last 66 years. We have DNA's code being cracked. We have, we have internet connectivity. We have space travel. We have biotechnology. All these great things. Nothing has happened in origin of life. We remain clueless. So we ought to stop this funding until we can address some of the hurdles that are here. And now, now what about, now we're going to move from origin of life to evolution. So now let's assume we have the first life. We have the first life. Now we've got to evolve creatures from this first life, which we don't know how to make in the first place. And you say, well, it was seeded here by some aliens came in. That's okay. I'm all right with that. But where did that first life come from? 
So that just begs the question. You, you still have to take this back somewhere. All right. I signed a statement in 2001 saying we're skeptical of the claims of the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. I had no idea that this would become the touchstone to attack people through. This came as a quick email to me in around 2001. I said, sure, I can agree to that. Well, this now has become what's called a scientific descent from Darwinism statement. And, and uh, uh, so, in 2016, I was just so frustrated with this, I set out on a personal mission to engage with biologists, philosophers of science, mathematicians, and geneticists in order to better understand evolution. Here are some of the things that I learned. So what I'm going to tell you about is what I learned. And it's hard to get people to engage with me on this. You'd think that, oh, my colleagues would just say, oh, Jim, let me sit down, let's go have lunch, and, and I'll tell you. No, they avoid me. <laughs> because they don't have the answer. All right, Darwinian theory has already been debunked by the biologists. Many biologists suggest that, and I'm quoting them, random mutation and natural selection have long been recognized by many evolutionaries themselves to be insufficient to account for the complexity of life. They say that neutral drift is quantitatively more important than natural selection in understanding genetic differences between organisms. Further, the mechanisms of evolution and their relative importance are continuously subject to careful examination and revision. So careful examination of the evidence has not been avoided. So I'm saying if, 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 it's, if it's not, remember what it said here, if it's not... If, if it's not random mutation and natural selection, and you get, say that's already been debunked, why don't you sign the statement with me? And so, so they say neutral drift. What's neutral drift? That's the small ch genetic changes that occur between me and my children, and then between them and their children. These small, that's more important than this natural selection process and, and this random mutation. And the other thing is the mechanisms involved. So evolution, this is quoting them, is both about the mechanism by which change occurs over time and the theory of universal common descent. This is what biologists tell me. Evolutionary biology. Evolution is about the mechanisms by which change occurs over time. Okay, so we want to see mechanisms. And the theory of universal common descent. First of all, the universal common descent theory is a very advanced theory and it has a lot going for it. I concede it has a lot going for it. It is an amazing theory. Let's look at this, though. Common descent versus uncommonness. Humans have about 20,000 protein-coding genes. That means that within the DNA, there's about 20,000 segments that, that make these proteins that then are the little nanomachines that build us. That's why, you, you know, you can, you, you can eat a kolache today and tomorrow, you know, it's, it's a part of the skin on your hand. How does that happen? Well, because we have these little nanomachines that do this, and these proteins are these nanomachines. So this is coded by the DNA. The DNA has the code for this. But that is only 1.5% of the entire DNA in the human genome. It's within the 1.5% that common descent studies are primarily focused, in that 1.5%. So a large-scale project was instituted in 2003 by the U.S. National Genome Research Institute. That's not a Christian organization, it's a federal organization called the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements, or ENCODE. And it seeks to determine the role of the remaining 98.5% of the genome that was formerly poorly called junk DNA. They don't only call it junk, they call it, in, they call it the intergenic regions, or intergenic DNA. There's ENCODE evidence that part or even much of the intergenic regions have regulatory elements that can affect gene transcription. So in other words, they're not junk. 
were, they were finding. And so what happened was that, that when this started coming out, they would say, oh yeah, there's not that many. There's only about a hundred or so of those segments that are relevant. And then the next year there were thousands. And the next, in the next year there were tens of thousands. Finding that within that 98.5%, there's huge amounts. Remember, all of universal common descent, the vast majority of universal common descent is based on 1.5% of the DNA. So if you look at that 1.5% of the DNA, we are 99.99% the same as a chimpanzee. But if you look at another 98.5%, that's where the differences occur. If you look at just that 1.5%, we're 70% the same as a dandelion. <laughs> it's true. There's work on orphan genes called orphans which casts new light on the uniqueness of some genetic information. Orphan genes are considered unique to a narrow taxon, generally a species. Therefore, orphan genes are markers for uncommonness. Okay, so the uncommon human being. Humans alone have the capacity for art, music, advanced communication, advanced mathematics, and religious practice, which constitute the broader organization of symbolism. Therefore, if one is intent upon a common descent model, there was a massive and presently unexplainable infusion, intrinsic or extrinsic, along the proposed very short descent pathway between Australopithecines and the modern humans. That's, the, that's in universal common descent. We're right below Neanderthal or Australopithecines. If it were an intrinsic infusion, then the requisite anatomical and chemical differences between the modern human brain and other hominid brains are presently indiscernible and unfathomable. And the chemical basis for the evolutionary mechanisms for such changes are both unknown and presently immeasurable. If the infusion were extrinsic, meaning some outside influence did it, then the materialist evolutionist and the supernaturalist share some common ground. The mechanisms are unknown for that. Here's the mechanism problem. This is right off of Wikipedia. What is a body plan? A body plan is the ground plan, is an assemblage of morphological features shared among common members of a phylum level group. The term is usually applied to animals and envisages the blueprint encompassing aspects such as symmetry, segmentation, limb deposition. You know, our limbs are, are deposited differently than, say, in a tiger. That's body plan, organization. And it is, it is thought that this evolved very, very gra evolved gradually through this Paleozoic period. Nobody understands the mechanism. Remember what biology is about, evolutionary biology? From their own words, it's that evolutionary biology is about universal common descent, of which we're finding there's a lot of uncommonness in the other 98.5% of the DNA. And the other thing is about mechanisms. We have no mechanisms. We have no mechanisms for brain. Why, why our brains are working so much differently than other hominids, meaning, meaning than, than, than chimpanzees and apes. What, why is it? What is it about our brain that is so different? We don't know. It's obviously different. We, we can't even tell. So where's the mechanism? The mechanism isn't there. We can't fathom the mechanism for body plan changes. So the mechanism problem, any massive functional change of a body part would require multiple concerted lines of variations. Sure, one can ex suggest small changes ad infinitum, but a concerted requirement of multiple changes all in the same place at the same time is impossible to chemically fathom. One day we might know, as of today we don't know. That doesn't mean we'll never know. We may know someday. As of right now we don't know. <clears throat> but evolutionary biology has been reduced to storytelling with little chemical mechanistic data to support its claims. You ask an evolutionary, how does that happen? And they'll go through and they'll tell you a story 
Give me the mechanism for that. How do the chemicals do this sort of thing? Look, I just told you the mechanism. No, you didn't. You told me a story. There's no chemistry in that. There's no molecules. Show me the paper that show me molecular... Nothing. Nothing. It's storytelling. And then you present to them the totally opposite argument. They'll tell you another story for that. Great storytellers. It's been reduced to storytelling. This is true. So there's collective cluelessness. Therefore, I don't understand the mechanisms needed to change body plans or the mechanisms along the descent pathway between Australopithecines brain and modern human brains if we are indeed commonly descended as predicted by the universal common descent theory. And nobody else understands the mechanisms either. Nobody. Nobody. They can say what they will, but nobody understands it. This is why they avoid me. If they had the answers, they wouldn't avoid me. But unlike most, I'm saying it publicly. And many people don't want to say it publicly because it has ramifications in their careers. Collective cluelessness. Recall quoting the biologist, evolution is both about the mechanism by which change occurs over time and the theory of universal common descent. The mechanisms are unknown and the theory of universal common descent, though robust, is being confronted by evidence that can be interpreted as uncommonness. So further studies warranted. I would never say we shouldn't work on this. We should work on this. But it's going to need a lot more study to be convincing. Let's look at scientific facts versus the Bible. So what I did is I showed you these presentations both on, on evolution and both on, on, on the origin of life and evolution. Now let's look at scientific facts versus the Bible because so many young people get confused by professors when they go, go to college. Let's look at scientific facts. Well, there is no discord between scientific facts and the Bible's reports. There are none. There is, there is discord between scientific theory and the Bible's reports. One should be careful about trying to fit the Bible into the prevailing scientific theories because theories keep changing while the Bible remains the same. Here's some vacillating so-called scientific facts that are really theories. We already considered two. Junk DNA versus intergenic DNA and its regulatory function. So, it, you, 20 years ago, it was said that 98.5% that of the DNA is junk. You know, it's from things in the past that has no regulatory function, doesn't do anything. Well, now that's changed. So that was what was called a scientific fact, that 98.5% that is junk. That's a fact. Believe it. That's a fact. Uh, no, it's not a fact. Remember, facts don't change, but theories change. So what was touted as being a fact was really a theory. We looked at another one. Evolutionary theory formerly dominated by random mutation and natural selection is now replaced by neutral drift and universal common descent as the dominant features. So this thing that was drilled into middle-aged people here, that random mutation and natural selection was what, what evolution is all about? Oh, uh, sorry, that's wrong. We got a new, new one here. So it, it's not fact at all. Let's look at something else. Does the universe have a beginning? Scientific fact changed in 1964. Steady state theory. The universe had no beginning. That is what was believed. This was the prevailing view of scientists right on into the 1950s. The universe had no beginning. It always was. And they had great theories for how matter was being created in the midst of this, being dumped into the universe. That was the steady state theory. 
Then there came the Big Bang Theory. The universe had a definite beginning 13.8 billion years ago. And the Big Bang Theory was actually a lot more aligned with the Bible, that it had a beginning. The universe has a defined beginning. For most cosmologists, the definitive refutation of the steady-state model came with the discovery of cosmic microwave background radiation in 1964, which was predicted by the Big Bang Theory. So, you went from the prevailing view among scientists that the universe doesn't have a beginning to it does have a beginning. You see how the so-called scientific facts change? Because they're theories. We must put them forth as theories and not facts. Punctuated equilibrium, scientific fact, changed in 1972. Darwinian theory involves the slow, gradual change for the development of new species. That's what Darwin put forth. Well, punctuated equilibrium suggests that evolutionary development is marked by isolated episodes of rapid speciation between long periods of little or no change. So Eldridge and Gould proposed that the degree of gradualism commonly attributed to Charles Darwin is virtually non-existent in the fossil record, and that stasis, meaning no morphological change, dominates the history of most fossil species. So, in other words, it went from this gradual thing that Charles Darwin told us to nothing happens, and all of a sudden, over a period of about 100,000 years, there's massive change. That's punctuated equilibrium. So there was a scientific fact that changed just in 1972, within the lifetime of many of the people here. About 1980, what killed off the dinosaurs? Prior to 1980, climate change was the fact that killed off dinosaurs 66 million years ago. That was the prevailing worldview of scientists in, up until 1980. But then after that, the asteroid impact killed the dinosaurs. So the Alvarez hypothesis that a huge asteroid hit planet Earth on the, at the Yucatan Peninsula, it was an iridium-rich asteroid, that threw up all this dirt into the air, that dirt obscured the sunlight, the plants died, the animals that lived on the plants died, the, the carnivores then died because there were no other animals to eat, and that rapidly killed off all the dinosaurs. That is now the prevailing view by scientists since 1980. Prior to 1980, it was different. You see that the so-called scientific facts change. How long ago did the, di did the dinosaurs die off? Well, scientific fact is being questioned still today. Since 2007, it's being questioned. If you look on Wikipedia, it'll say the dinosaur extinction event which occurred, that's that Alvarez hypothesis, occurred approximately 66 million years ago and caused the extinction of, of all dinosaurs except for some of the bird species. Well, in 2007, Mary Higby Schweitzer, a paleontologist at NC State University, led the group that discovered the remains of blood cells in dinosaur fossils, and later discovered soft tissue remains in Tyrannosaurus rex specimens. And she was railed upon. I mean, they just, they just went at her, oh, you're wrong, that can't be, these things died off 66 million years ago, you can't have organic matter and blood cells and all that staying around that long. Well, lots of samples are now being found. In 2015, researchers reported finding similar structures similar to blood cells, collagen fibers, that's all protein preserved in the bone fossils of six Cretaceous dinosaur specimens, which are approximately 75 million years old. Soft tissue is often proteins like collagen. Now they've found hundreds of examples of this. So it's kind of shaky. Things are kind of, kind of, kind of the, what was fact is being questioned now. How about the genetic diversity in humans cannot have resulted from a single breeding pair? We cannot have 
and I'm talking about the biological Adam and Eve, who were the, 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 the first progenitors of the human race, it is, it is believed that, that it could not have been just two people. It had to be far more diverse than that. Well, that scientific fact is being questioned as, as of this year. As of 2018, genetic experiments are showing that a single breeding pair in the last 10,000 years, or even 6,000 years, can account for the genetic diversity in humans, provided that interbreeding with human-like creatures, like Neanderthals, was occasionally occurring. You say, well, humans wouldn't breed with Neanderthals. Human sexual behavior never surprises me. <laughs> never does. And, and uh, uh, that there was intermingling with things that were humanoid, it, it happens, it, it, you know, these, these things happen. I mean, and uh, uh, things that aren't even humanoid happens today. And so once you provide for that, then it could have come from a single breeding pair. Okay, so scientific fact versus the Bible. A scientific fact, water, H2O, has two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. That will be the same throughout the universe, and that will never change. That is a fact. That's what a fact is. There has never been discordance between scientific facts and the statements in the Bible, so there's no need to reconcile them. So-called scientific facts, which are really theories, are constantly changing, even on the order of decades and certainly on the order of a century. So trying to twist the Bible to fit with scientific theory is a frustrating endeavor. Do not let scientists with their bold claim of quote-unquote facts upset you. Theories or conjectures are not facts. But unfortunately and shamefully, many scientists themselves do not make the necessary distinction. This leads to confusion of generations of students and even professors themselves. Professors have told me, look, evolution is a fact. Well, it depends on how you define evolution. You want to have small changes? Yeah, you can see that all the time in the lab. Have you ever seen evolution of a complex system? And what they'll do is they'll, they'll give you lots of references on the immune system. The immune system morphs based on what's presented to it. And my argument to them, yeah, and it, it remained an immune system. It never became a digestive system. <laughs> it remained what it was. Show me evolution of a complex system. Even propose to me how that would happen. You don't even have to have done it. Just show me how that immune system would morph into a different system. And they get extremely frustrated with me. And why is that? Why would they get frustrated? Well, maybe because it's more like a religion. Maybe so. So, to the student inundated with misinformation, I have this to say from Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 3 and 4. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. God was warning Israel about false prophets. He says, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart with all, and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow. And him you must revere. Keep his commandments and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. Some professors put this out as misinformation. They are confused themselves. So it is misinformation. For those that are not confused, but will call a theory intentionally a fact, then it becomes disinformation. That is like the false prophets of old. And there are many who will view this, if not presently, online, later on when it's put up online as a recording, and they will have to face the facts that it is misinformation to label something 
that is a theory and to label it as a fact because theories keep changing. Even your most beloved theories, like the universe has always been here. Whoops. Changed. You must not listen to them. So students, Christian students, I say to you, you must not listen to them. Don't let these things shake you. The Lord, your God, is testing you to see, to find out whether you really love Him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord you must follow. And it is Him you must revere. This is what He calls you to. This is what He calls you to. I'm going to finish up with an appeal. An appeal to you. If you have wavered in your faith or denied your faith because of what you had thought was scientific fact, I'm calling you back. If you have been drawn astray or you have been kept from faith because of you thought were scientific claims, I have an appeal for you. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is offering you the free gift of His Son. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. God says, come to me. I won't remember your sins. I will not remember your sins. This is God who says this. He says, come to me. For my own sake, I won't remember your sins. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. This thing of the resurrection from the dead, I'm always amazed at this. How can a thinking man or woman ever believe in a physical resurrection from the dead? Well, if you investigate it, you'll see the massive amounts of evidence for the resurrection from the dead. But you don't even have to. Because he has placed that truth within the heart of every man and woman. And I almost exclusively deal with the educated. With either students in college or graduate students or faculty. And I see all the time, every week, people coming to the Lord and believing that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. How do you explain that? Had he not placed that truth within the heart of every human being? That Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And he's calling you back today. He says, come to me. And I will remember your sins no more. Because my son is a gift for you. He's a gift. I appeal to you today. But God goes further than that. He doesn't just appeal. He commands. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. He commands it. He says, come to me, let us reason together. He will reason with you. He will appeal to you. But in the end, He will command you, come to me. Come to me. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is an absolute. We have to. And he wipes out your transgressions. He will remember your sin no more. Will you stay there and say, it's okay, I'm good, I don't need forgiveness? Or do you know that you need forgiveness? That you are a sinner in need of forgiveness? 
If you need forgiveness, do not neglect the gift that he extends to you this day. Let's pray. Abba, Father, I come to you this day and I ask you to draw these people to your Son. For those here who do not know you, I pray, O God, that you would draw them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. For those that have been led astray because of the so-called facts of science, Father, I pray that you draw them back into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that the unbeliever or those, who, or those who have left you would say this very day with me, forgive me because I am a sinner. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, that I have been drifted and I have left because of the voice of a false prophet. Forgive me for that, Lord. I receive Jesus Christ this day as the Son of God And I believe that he's risen from the dead. Father, I pray that you draw them close to your son. For the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So, I would never say that we will... Am I on? I would never say that we're not ever going to understand. I mean, if you you think of... Think of the year 1900. We had no idea that information was embedded in DNA. Now it's clear. Now it's clear. So there's many things we're going to learn. But the suggestion is that we understand all this. That's the suggestion. But we're utterly clueless on it. So we must proclaim that we're clueless. I never said, and we will never know. I think there's a lot of things we're going to learn. But as of this moment, we're clueless. So to say, well, this is well worked out. We really understand all of this, you know. It's quite wrong to say. So I never suggested the God of the gaps that we're clueless on this forever. That's where we are today.
Because scientists are just like everybody else. We have the same insecurities as everyone else, and, and, uh, 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 and we want to protect our areas, and it bothers us when people start questioning the areas that we have, have talked a lot about. And it, it's, it's just we have the normal insecurities, and we have to, to allay these things. And, and if you can do that by silencing, and silencing does occur. You know, I used to think, you know, I don't, I don't work in the area of evolutionary biology. I don't even work in origin of life. None of that. I just build nanosystems. We build molecules that we take on to the next stage and build actual systems from that. And the number of people who do that is a very small number. But through that, you see how hard this is. And I was so tired of hearing all of these suggestions. And really the thing that, that made me do this is that, that uh, uh, my colleagues said that they would not put me up for promotions into certain academies because I had signed that statement. And I said, that statement? Because I signed that? You're not going to put me up for the academies? Well, then I'm coming out of the closet. <laughs> you know, I was being kind of nice. And, and so, you know, then I saw that, that these academies are self-selecting. So when they say in the academy, 99% of the people are buy into all of this. Yeah, because you self-selected. You know, and, and, uh, and that's what it is. Because there's this dominant view, and those of us who will speak up differently, we don't get grant money, there are things that happen to people, and so little by little, you, you, you know, if you don't get renewed for grants, you don't get tenure, you don't get all these things. never affected me, because I got tenure a long time ago. I got tenure on other things. Now they can't keep me quiet, but they, they can make it hard to get grants. They really do, and uh, uh, because it bumps up against some of their errors. But you would think that they would just come to me and talk to me. Just say, oh, look, let me just show you, and all of this will go away. I had for over 10 years on my website, I'll buy lunch to anybody who comes and explains it to me. Finally, a, a guy called me, and we talked, and I actually flew out to him, and we spent several days together, and that's where I, we really went through universal common descent and the mechanisms and neutral drift. He didn't convince me, but now I see where he's coming from. At least he engaged with me. Most people don't want to even engage. If you really understand something, it's easy to engage. It's when you don't understand something. What, what bothers us about people questioning our religion? When, when we don't have an answer, we want to get violent and just quiet them. And so, but when we're prepared and we have an answer, it, it just becomes a simple little discussion.
Right, so the, the scriptures clearly, the New Testament clearly speaks of Adam and Eve as well, not, not just the Old Testament. Jesus said, you do not believe me because you do not believe of Moses. Do you, you, not, you do not believe Moses. He wrote of me. So Jesus brought them right back to the writings of Moses. The writings of Moses, always along with the writings of Moses, have been, have been the book of Genesis. You know, I, I, don't, I don't like to take certain positions, but I can tell you what theistic evolutionists, many of them are fine people. I mean, but so what they would say, what they would say to your answer is that, is that there were humanoids and God selected a pair of them and endowed his spirit within them and set them in the garden. That would be their argument. Not saying that, that, that I know that. I'm just saying that that's what they would say. So that, that breathing of his life into them was the act of him selecting that pair and those others that bred into that. So now you have the ones that have this life of God breathed into them. They are the line of humans as we know them today with some outside the garden influence providing other genetic information into it. And that accounts then for the diversity which can even come in sub 10,000 years or 6,000 years. So I I think that's an answer to, to your argument. But even if you have theistic evolution... You still have to have the mechanisms to be there. And maybe one day we'll know those mechanisms. I'm just saying that as of now, the mechanisms that we have are for small changes. The gross changes, like the body plan changes, we don't have it. Now, if, if certainly God could have done it that way. He can do anything he wants. But he hasn't left us a trail yet that we found. And we may find it, but we don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll say them every chance I get. I mean, if, if I'm invited here to speak, I'll proclaim it. I've been invited to other places to speak, and I say it. So what's the right form? I mean, you come to my house, I'll tell you the same thing. So everywhere, how's that? Right. So, first of all, I don't, I don't think that Craig ever called it synthetic life. I think people called it that afterward. And so what he did is he took an already assembled cell, a living cell, a biological organism already made, and then he, he made separately the, the DNA code for controlling one. He took out the existing one and he put the other one in. So... What I do is, is, is I, I buy, I buy a Ford and, and I, I, I take, I take out the battery and I get a battery from a Chevy and I put it in there. I made a car. I made a car. Isn't that amazing? That's just amazing. I made that car. That is exactly what he did. It's exactly what he did. And, and, uh, uh, you, he had all the pieces already there. 
Or I make a battery in my laboratory, we make batteries, and I put that in the car. Did I make the car? I mean, and that's exactly what was done. So I don't, I don't think they even called it synthetic life. People have called it synthetic life after that. I mean, what part of it did he make? He made this, this, this code using, using methods, and then he put it in this existing cell. That's what he did. Yeah, I, I, so, so I think you, you, you have to burn inside to want to share the Word of God with other people. And my heart is so utterly hard that I have to pray to God, oh, that my, my head were waters and my eyes a fountain, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughters of my people. Or like Rachel, I pray, give me children or I die. I'm amazed at the hardness of my heart where I don't care if other people are going to hell. And I say, Lord, soften my heart. May I see like you see. And that drives me to want to pray and to want to share with them. When I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, I never use the scientific topics. I never do. Some people say, you know, they... That's fine for them. I go right back to the gospel, the same message that was shared with me 40 years ago. I use the bridge illustration where man is separated from God by a chasm of sin. And I spell out for them what sin is and how there's life in Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead and it's a free gift of God. But fundamentally, that doesn't happen because everybody's sat through all sorts of evangelism seminars and you come out and you're all excited for about four nanoseconds and you never share anymore. When your heart breaks for the loss and that comes by imploring God, Lord, change my heart that I would care about the lost and see them as you do. Give me children or I die. Then you'll share. 